Psalm 101. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. They will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are good, and you alone are the source of goodness. Your presence is our greatest treasure. We will never exchange your presence for anything else. Help us to be who you've called us to be, your church, your holy people. All our hope is in you. Our loyalty is 100% with you. What you hate, we hate. What you love, we love. Fill us with your truth and help us to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Confession time this morning. Where are my HGTV people at? You know who you are. I said, all right, it's true. I, I appreciate your hands. All you watching Home and Garden, you know, TV guys, I know some of you are watching this too. I, I drifted away from, you know, the, uh, the documentary channel and I started watching a garden show. My wife wanted to take my temperature. You, some of you watch Flip That House, or how many of you have seen one of those shows like Fixer Upper? You know what I'm talking about? Home Makeover, where the crew of professionals, they go in and they completely transform a house. And at first, you know, it looks nasty. The place is falling apart. But not only are these homes outdated, you know, they're just, they're not even worth living. They're unlivable. They're, they're totally in disrepair. And then a team of designers comes in and contractors. And by the time the show is over, man, the place looks like a mansion. You're like, would you come over to my house, right? C.S. Lewis said this, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you understand, you know, what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's, he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those were jobs that needed to be done. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. Abominous, abominably. It doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. No, he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And that was the plan from the beginning, that God and his special creations, the ones that were made in his image, would live together. You thought you knew your friends until you got an apartment and moved in together. <laughs> and then you got a smelly education, right, about who your friends really were. And you went to the fridge and your groceries were gone. Or you spent 15 minutes looking through the laundry for that T-shirt and guess who's wearing it, right? Or you got married, you know, and then you're living together. In the middle of the night, you get up and you almost kill yourself tripping over those stiletto heels that were left like a booby trap in the middle of the floor. 
Hey, hey, I make plenty of messes at home, and, you know, Kirsten is such hard work, and it's what makes it really. Are you grateful for your wife, guys? Come on. I'm just digging my way out of that. Okay. <clears throat> Look, these are examples of imperfect people. Help me, Lord. Imperfect people just doing life together. But our perfect and faithful God, he wants to live with you. And there's a great mystery here, and I don't want you to miss it. And it's the thing that David sought for. It's what he treasured more than anything else. It was the presence of God. It's the presence of God. It changes everything. Am I right? Isn't that what Moses said? I'm not willing to go into the promised land without. He says in Exodus 33, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. How can it then be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we and I and your people may be distinguished from all the people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. You see, Moses knew that the thing that sets us apart is God's people, is God's presence with us. Do you remember all the miracles that God did for the Hebrews who were enslaved to set them free from Egypt? The blood, the flies, the frogs, the darkness, all of it. These were just a vehicle to get them to the greatest miracle of all, to the mountain where they could experience God's presence, where they could all hear his voice speaking to them. And I want you to think about all the miracles that God has done for you. The times that he stepped in and healed or answered a prayer or intervened in your life. You see, these were just vehicles driving you towards the greatest miracle, the real miracle. Understanding that God loves you and that he wants nothing more than to live with you forever. And our psalm begins, I will sing of your love and justice, O Lord. God is the singularity. God is the person in whom unfailing mercy and absolute justice come together. And I think there's significance that of these two qualities, it is God's love that appears first. And the Hebrew word that David is using here is chesed. It's a word describing God's faithful covenant love. If it wasn't for his love, we could never come to understand or appreciate his justice because we would all be destroyed by it. Lamentations chapter 3, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. The purity and the holiness of God demand justice. You and I are limited, finite beings. You know, we can only experience time right here and now. But God is not limited in this way. No, he's eternal. And the past and the present and the future, they're all now to him. And so you can't excuse your sin by just saying, hey, you know, that was in the past. Hey, man, hey, don't judge me for that. That happened a long time ago. No, there's no such thing as a statute of limitations with God. No, justice demands that rebellions and treasons and sins committed against an eternal God require eternal consequences. And if one of my sins is enough to banish me forever from his presence, how many hells do we deserve after spending years in selfish pursuit and open rebellion to his authority and trashing his great love and manipulating and lying and on and on and on with endless failures? He did not have to love us. And there were many times that he should have walked away and would have been completely justified in doing that. But he didn't do that. 
You see his faithful love. It led him all the way to the cross. And his faithful love willingly gave up all for you. In Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And before God created you, he knew everything you were going to do. He knew all of your failures and sins and thoughts and the lies you would tell. He still created you. He still chose you. He loves you. And he chose to die for you. And Jesus gave up his reputation. And he gave up his back to a whip. He gave up his head to that crown of thorns and his hands and feet to the nails. And he endured a public humiliation and an agonizing crucifixion so that mercy and love could cover your sins. And it's there at the cross where love and justice meet. They're both there in equal parts. And when we consider the price that Jesus was willing to pay, we're speechless because we know none of us could ever meet the demands of his perfect justice. And all of us will be confronted with God's justice. You know, if we go back to that idea that C.S. Lewis had where we are a house, you know, one day God's going to come in with his perfect square and he's going to examine every inch of the structure, right? And God's book of regulations, you know, they, they dwarf the state of California's. And spoiler alert, everyone fails. But when we hand Jesus the title deed... And when we get out of his way and let him be the foreman, we can face even that day with hope and confidence because we are covered by his mercy, we are embraced by his love, and we know that God's justice will not be our doom. No, it will only complete that purification that began in our lives here and now. And in 1 John, he says, Beloved, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Billions of people are going to face that moment with no hope and no opportunity for repentance and no altar call and no opportunity for forgiveness. And maybe someone in your family or maybe someone in this room this morning will be confronted with the justice of a holy God having rejected his mercy through Jesus Christ. And it gets me fired up to think about it. All those who, who will face that day with agonizing consequences because of the justice that awaits. And so I will not be shamed into being quiet. I will not let awkwardness or, or fear or a feeling of embarrassment keep me from telling anyone and everyone about the love of God and what he's done for me in my life. Praise God. And so that is verse 1. And that is the foundation. And the next seven verses are all about integrity. They are the effect. They are the results. They are the fruit of that one verse. I will lead a blameless life. I will walk with a blameless heart. I, I won't look at sinful things. I won't be friends with the faithless and the disloyal and the perverted. In fact, I won't have anything to do with evil. I won't entertain it. I won't buy it. I won't watch it. I won't think about it. I won't be around those who do. I won't listen to people who lie about others and gossip about people. I want nothing to do with people who are prideful. I won't be friends with liars and I won't listen to lies and I won't let lies and the people who tell them live in my house. Whew, talk about extreme home makeover right there. And it all begins with verse one, worshiping God, 
because of his love and justice. You see, I'm going to tell you how a baby is made. Aren't you glad you came this morning? All right. If you're a teenager here, let's just keep your eyes up here. Don't look at your mom and dad, right? Glad you came to church this morning. Look, two things come together, a sperm and an egg, right at the right time, right? And all of your organs, all the structures, your whole system is built on these two items. Every one of us spent the first half hour of our life as a single-celled organism, right? But you didn't stay that way. You can't stay that way. And so the psalm begins with two things, and they're both essential, love and justice. And they come together at the cross of Jesus Christ, and now a new life, a new creation is made. But you don't get to stay there. Why? Because a life is being built. Maybe you've seen in the news the collapse of the Morandi Bridge in Genoa, Italy. Devastating loss, 49 lives because of, I'm sorry, 39, it was 40 at the funeral, I think I saw the last time. A young couple, you know, headed for vacation, truck drivers just doing their business, a family of three coming home from their vacation, or a family of four heading out for their holiday, Italians and French and Algerians all among the dead. Families are devastated, businesses are at risk, a city is shaken, all because of this bridge that lost its integrity. And the most tragic part is that the mayor of the city said the collapse was not unexpected. You see, the bridges, bridges don't just collapse because of an explosion or an earthquake. No, most of the time they collapse because they're not updated and they're ignored and they're re- neglected through decades of use and storms and they're never reinforced. They're just built and used. And our lives are like bridges. Our lives lead the way. Our lives are a bridge for others to find the love of God. And if our lives are bridges for people to cross over out of darkness and out of bondage and confusion and evil of this world and into the light and the freedom and the truth and the goodness of the kingdom of heaven, a bridge for the people that we work with, a bridge for our families and future generations, can we all agree that one of the most important features of the bridge of our lives is integrity? They interviewed this lady after the bridge collapsed. Her name was Marissa Spignati. And she says, I wish they would stop making messes like this and start doing things better for for the generation that comes after us because we are tired of crying for the dead. People of God, can we agree to stop making messes like this and do things better for the generations coming after? Are you tired of crying for the loss and the pain and the death because of a loss of integrity? Your sin does not just affect you. And any voice telling you otherwise is a liar. Your life and your choices and your habits and your influence, your words are going out to everyone around you and they're rippling out into the community and they're rippling out into the future in ways you could never imagine. Take a lesson from the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You remember the movie? We watch it every Christmas. You know, George Bailey, he hits a financial crisis and in a moment of weakness, he runs out to the bridge and he wishes he had never been born. And an angel appears and grants his wish. And you know, the rest of the movie is just scene after scene of George confronted with a very different and a very dark reality and a, diff- a dark world that he is not in anymore. Thankfully, you know, he learns his lesson in the movie and there's this beautiful happy ending, right? But the root of the word integrity is integer. It's a math word. And it describes a, a whole number, not a fraction, not a division, a wholeness to your life, not compartmentalized. You gave your life to Jesus. Can I just ask, how much money is your money? 
how much time is your time? What part of your life are you withholding from him? You know, the one that you said died for your sins, the one that you said you belonged to, who lied to you and told you that your body was yours to just do with whatever you want. No, in Luke chapter 21, it says, while Jesus was in the temple, he was watching the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. And then a poor widow came by and she dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, as poor as she is, has given everything that she has. You see, there's a danger here when we start discussing specific actions of our worship and our expression of devotion to God. It's a religious mindset that creeps in and it begins to just corrupt and pervert everything. And one of those lies of that religious mindset is my relationship with God is the result of my actions. Eh, wrong. The process does not work in reverse. I have a relationship with God, not because of what I have done, but because Jesus said, it is finished. And my actions are the result of my relationship with God. And that is why when my time comes and I stand before the throne of God, and if I receive any reward for any deed that pleased him, I will take it and throw it at the feet of Jesus because I will know it was only because of him and what he has done for me that any of it was possible. And Jesus was watching rich people coming in and dumping bags of money into the collection box. And he was not impressed by that. They were giving from a abundance. They were giving from their strength and their resource and their influence. And look, you know, there's always going to be people whose talents or abilities surpass yours. There's always going to be that somebody who runs faster than you or who's better looking or who's quicker with the funny remarks or, or who gets better grades and on and on. Comparing yourself to other people is a trap. And it's only going to end either in pride or in depression. The only comparisons that really matter are the ones that Jesus is making. Because when Jesus makes a comparison, the result is truth. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, as poor as she is, has given everything that she has. And listen to me this morning, you do not have to be poor to get God's attention. The widow did not get his attention because she was poor. She got his attention because she gave everything and she matched God's gift because he came to give all and she came to give all and she wasn't withholding anything. And by giving all of her money, she was giving not just tangible things, the things that she had in her hand now. She was giving up the future. She was giving up what she could have bought for herself, her next meal or her rent or her bills. She withheld nothing from him. You see, we're pretty good at giving God our past, aren't we? We love to see him take it and, and plunge it under the blood and cover it with his mercy, but giving up our current comforts, our current way of life, our conveniences, giving up our future or any possible future, all of the expectations and hopes. You see, there's only one answer to the question. How much should I give to God? All of it. All of it. 
He deserves all of it because that is what he gave for you. And he bought your life, all of it. So if you've been hoarding some part of it, hiding some part that that you want to belong to you and not to him, I want to remind you of what is true. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. I don't own anything because I didn't pay for it. He paid for it. So it's his time and it's his money and it's his talent and it's his church and it's his family and it's his kids. And as his kids, we remember, you know, doing this, right? We would try to get away with something. And then dad would say, not in my house. (laughs) Because dad sets the rules, right? Right? (laughs) If you're in my house, if you're in my house, you live by my rules, right? You all said that one, right? You you better say it. You better use that one. That one's for free this morning for somebody. I just helped you out. Look, why? Because he loved me. He was paying for everything. He was paying for the house and the clothes and the food and everything. Everything that made up my life, my dad had paid for. The hospital bills, the food, the water, right? God knows that you and I need to be reminded. The shoes on your feet, I bought it. Clothes you're wearing, I bought it. Rock you rocking, I bought it. Because you depend on me. Watch you're wearing, I bought it. House you live in, I bought it. Car you're driving, because you depend on me. Yeah, in spite of whatever, thank you for knowing what I was talking about there. <laughs> Destiny's child wants to say that you're independent, but God knows better than that. You see, when he died on the cross and and you accepted that payment for your sin, he bought it all. He bought all of your life and everything in it. And and we have the audacity to put a keep out sign on something that he owns. And as I was reading this psalm, it struck me that it was Psalm 101. You know, when David wrote this, he had no idea, you know, what number was going to get assigned to it thousands of years later. But today, when you and I process through our educational system, class 101 typically designates the beginning of a series, right? And I think it's appropriate that we're talking about Psalm 101 this week when all the students and all the teachers and all the administrators are all going back to school. See, it doesn't matter how old you are. Everything is built on what you learned in 101. And Psalm 101 is life with Jesus. It's David discussing how his worship of God, how his relationship with God directly affects him, how it changes him, and how on a fundamental level it influences all of his relationships and choices and actions. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It all begins with worship. Verse 1 sets the tone for everything else that follows it. Your personal commitment to and your devotion to and your adoration of and and devotion to the greatness of God is what's going to set the tone for everything else in your life. Not the idea of God, not the intellectual acknowledgement of who he is, your actual personal expression of worship. That's what we're talking about here. And Jesus said in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. You see, it's easy to make that mistake of thinking worship is what we listen to on Christian radio, right? Or what happens when we come to church and we sing a bunch of songs. And listen, I'm I'm not saying that that's not worship. Can we just be real here this morning? Can we? 
you've been going to church for a long enough you know, amount of time, and odds are there's probably been a service here or there where you sang the songs and you went through the motions and you checked the boxes, but worship did not happen for you. No connection was made because your mind was somewhere else and your heart was somewhere else. And because your mind and your heart were somewhere else, you didn't make that connection, am I right? And you could totally feel the difference when worship is or is not happening. And I, and I don't want to understate the importance of music as a tool of worship. Because from the dawn of history, uh, every civilization and tribe and culture on the planet has instinctively understood the power of music, that, that it is a gateway between the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension. But look, the very reason that you have books in your Bible, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's filled with laws and regulations and statutes that touch every aspect of life, is because God wants you to understand that the worship of him and your relationship with him is something that touches every aspect of your life. There are no safe spaces with God. There is no cry closet that he is not allowed to walk into and to speak truth and to make changes and to exercise his authority. But sometimes, you know, we try to sing the song, the psalm backwards, right? Because we want to look good sometimes without being good. Oh, help us. Can we be honest here this morning? Are we, you know what I'm talking about? Look, we control, we try to do all the things that we're supposed to do, but without him. And we're making changes to our house without consulting the foreman. And I've heard it more than one time in my interactions, you know, with atheists, this question. Can I just be good without God? I bring this up here, frankly, because it's a similar problem that creeps into the religious mindset. And that is consciously or unconsciously when a person begins to divorce the acts of goodness from the source of goodness. And this was something that Jesus confronted over and over again with the religious elites of his day in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And in the same way, on the outside, you appear as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And while it might be possible for a person to do something good without a relationship with God, Jesus makes it very plain that he views that as the definition of hypocrisy. Looking good doing something good without being good. Can I get an amen in God's house this morning? I know you know what I'm talking about because we have all been there and done that. And it is not pleasing to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, it's exhausting. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Look, trying to be a Christian without Jesus, it's hopeless and it's empty. And by relying on my own strength and my own ability and my own wits and my own resources to try to manufacture and maintain true integrity in my life, I already just guaranteed the the, the collapse of the bridge. There can be no compartmentalization. Our relationship with God must be ushered into and put into direct contact with every area of our lives. 
Because in fact, it is his almighty power. It's his character. It's his wisdom. It's his Holy Spirit at work in me. And that's what's going to give me the grace to do what I couldn't do and simultaneously maintain and reinforce everything he's invested in my life. Our worship of God immediately translates into how we go about life. And that's exactly what happens in verse 2. David says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? And the way that David asked this question stands out to me because it's, it's almost verbatim what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And for the sake of time this morning, I, I, don't, I just don't have time to unpack that story for you. But what you need to know is that 2 Samuel 6, it relates the story of an incident where, where David is trying to do something good without God and the consequences of that mistake. You see, he's trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, but he fails to take the time to inquire of God when and how he should do that. And when God, who is the source of goodness, is ignored by his people and disregarded, even our good deeds can be corrupted and turn tragic. Read the chapter, and you'll see a man loses his life. And David is confused and he's angry. And when we lose the priority of our relationship with God and we run impatiently, even after good things, we wind up confused and angry just like him. Am I right? And so David, he leaves the ark and he abandons the process and he begins asking, how can you come to me? How can your presence come to my life? This is the most important question that you and I could ever ask of him. And I can't help but wonder if this psalm is the result. Focusing on God gives me the perspective that I need for all the other matters of my life. And David is saying, I'm, I'm going to consider my ways. I'll be prudent. I'm going to really examine the road and the way without any imperfections. And the poetry of the Hebrew language here suggests that by, by worshiping God, a perfect road is revealed. And I think it's interesting that this is exactly how Jesus describes himself when he says, I am the way. Filter your thoughts through Jesus. Consider his presence in your life and what pleases him. And you will experience God's presence drawing near to you more and more because he will reveal more and more of himself to the person who signals to him more and more. You are my greatest treasure. Your presence is all that I desire. Because the ultimate contractor is going to test the integrity of your home. On Judgment Day, it's agonizing to think of, of people who will be sent to hell with no hope. But the worst part is people who think that they won't be. People who sit in church every week and they think they're okay, but they don't really belong to Christ. They're just doing a club. And this is the most terrifying verse in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we perform miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I never knew you. Relationship. Have you ever had a stalker before? I have. It's really weird and creepy because they know where you go and where you work. Maybe they'll follow you on social media or send you letters, right? But they don't know you. They think they do, but they don't. 
And that's how some people are with Jesus. They're stalking Jesus, but they don't really know him. And I mean, we, we all thought we knew our spouse when we got married, right? But how many of you can testify you didn't really know them until you started living together, right? You got married. Kirsten still surprises me. In a good way, in the best way possible. <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. Some of you are just dating Jesus. You go to the house, you chat once in a while, but he's not living with you. And Jesus says he will reply, I never knew you. There's not a relationship here. And he says, get away. You break God's laws. Saying a prayer, checking a religious box, and thinking that somehow because you, you, you checked that box that somehow your life is not subject to his authority or his leadership or his, that he gets to make any decisions in your life. No, it's because he bought and paid for my life. He gets to run it. He gets to run all of it. And every minute and dollar and decision and book and website and relationship, there are no safe spaces. Because Jesus is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords, and he is the Alpha, and he is the Omega, and he is the top of my life. Because he reached down when I was at my bottom, and he picked me up and pulled me into his glory and his kingdom. Can I get a shout this morning? Stand on your feet and give him praise this morning.